Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle's food and drink program. I am Marcus Hippi. This week we head to the Iberian Peninsula to hear how winemakers in two countries are working with one of the world's most popular white wine grapes. This area is very mountainous, you know, a lot of mountains, and it's next to the sea. And this combination of mountain and sea is unique in all over the Appalachian. Then, how London's favorite husband and wife restaurateur duo took advantage from having to move their restaurant Honey and Co to a new location. Stuffing things, rolling things, all these things. When Honey and Co got really, really busy, we couldn't keep up with the volume, and they are very time-consuming. So here, there's a bit more space, and hopefully, some of them over time will start coming back. All that, the week's headlines, and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too. Ahead in the next 30 minutes here on the menu. First today we journey to the northwest corner of the Iberian Peninsula to visit winemakers in two countries, working with one of the world's most popular white wine grapes. In Spain's Galicia region, you'll come across people drinking wines made from the lively Albariño grape, while just south over the border, locals know it as Albariño, the noble white grape of Portugal's Vinho Verde appellation. Single varietal wines from this green-skinned Iberian grape variety are a common sight today at restaurants around the world. But what are the differences between the two? Monaco's correspondent Ivan Cavallo ventures into the cellar with winemakers to find out. Spain's signature white wine grape, Albariño, has grown for centuries in the coastal area of Galicia. Here, in the Rías Baixas Appalachian, lots of rain, hillsides as green as Ireland, Ocean mists and granite soils help Abarino mature on the vine. Noelia Babelia is one niche winery doing a brisk business with the grape. Simon Barthia of Noelia Babelia. As you can see today, we are battling our 2021 vintage of Albariño, and we are in the Rías Baixas denomination. And the place where we are is Soto Mayor. That it's a very, very teeny sub-area of Rías Baixas denomination. The difference between this sub-area and the other one is that this area is very mountainous, you know, a lot of mountains, and it's next to the sea. And this combination of mountain and sea is unique in all over the Appalachian. We think that this is an important thing because the production is very, very low, a half of the other sub-areas. And the concentration and the maturity of Albariño grapes are very, very nice here. So, Simon, we just saw the bottling now of your 2021 vintage. Now, I see these steel tanks that you use. So, what process does the wine go through after you've picked it by hand? We harvest these grapes in September of last year, and all wineries in Rio Baixas the harvest is hand picked. Then we press a very light press without dimming or crushing. We press the whole bunch of the grapes. Once the fermentation is finished, then we wait about six months because the cold of the winter is very important to make the wine. You need December, January. The low temperatures are very important to make the wine more sophisticated and aromatic. Tasting the Noelia Albariño, one sees a pale golden lemon hue in the glass, good natural acidity that is balanced, and notes of stone fruit plus honeysuckle that make a lasting impression on the palate. Across the border, in Portugal's Minho region, winemakers have also had success making single varietal wines from the same white grape. 
known here as Alvarino. I drop in to visit Sara Covas at her family-run winery, Cortina Velha, located in the Monsaun and Malgasso subregion of the Vigno Verde appellation. Covas walks me through her vineyards as she explains the area's unique geographical traits. As you can see here in Minho, we have a very specific landscape. It's very different from everything that you are going to see, even in Vigno Verde region. Monsaun and Malgasso is a very special subregion. You can find uh, here still very traditional trained vines, high vines supported by granitic posts. You can find pergolas, ancient types of vineyards. We are in the northernmost part of Portugal, and this is where Alvarinho was born. Although Alvarinho is now a traveling variety, it was born here in Monsão and Malgaço, so you have to transmit to people what is different about our grape cultivated here and abroad. It has specific characteristics that comes from the terroir. You have granitic soils, which imprint very special characteristics to the grapes. And you have this protection from the impact of the seas, which comes from the alignment of Valo do Minho and Serra da Galiza mountains. So it's like a natural amphitheater for our wines and our grapes. We then venture into the cellar, where Covis presents her still and sparkling versions of Alvarinho to show off the grapes' versatility. So here I'm pouring the Reserva Alvarinho. So our goal with this Alvarinho was to show the true potential of uh, Alvarinhos from our subregion. So we want to bring the terroir to your glasses. And this is a very well-balanced and elegant wine. It's a Vigno Verde wine, but with more alcohol than the general Vigno Verde wines. And it's all about the floral and fruity notes, but the elegance and the texture that makes it a very special, special wine. So this still wine, it's very different from the frizzy Vigno Verde that people used to abroad. So this is more like a gastronomic wine, a very serious one. And we want to take the Alvarinho to another level. And we want to show that Vigno Verde is about quality too. So we have been making sparkling Alvarinho since 2014, where we made our first one. And from the beginning, we said that we wanted to do a very premium sparkling Alvarinho, so we don't take shortcuts. We chose the Champagne method for our sparkling, and we do everything manually, from remouage to degorgement. We also try to keep the sparkling in the bottle in contact for at least 24 months. So when you taste our Alvarinho, it's so special because it has the lemony acidity, it has the elegant mousse, it has the aromas from the variety from the Alvarinho and also a very persistent finish. So it's a very well-balanced Alvarinho. And because it's so gastronomic, you can pair it with the traditional foods like lamb or suckling pig, but also with cheeses and more traditional pairings like seafood and desserts. Covis recently had the chance to pour her wines at the Feira do Alvarinho, the largest wine event in Portugal that each year draws over 100,000 people over three days. There I met famed Portuguese enologist Anselmo Mendes, often referred to as Mr. Alvarinho, who has 35 years' experience working with the grape. For me, the Alvarinho is the best or more. It's the most recognized grape variety, white grape variety in Portugal. The wines are very mineral. It's a good balance. Acidity and the, the, the body 
Alvarinho has uh, two things very special. It's a strong body and uh, high acidity. And aging very well, in my opinion, is the, the best grape that aging very, very well in the bottle. Single varietal Alvarinho from Portugal shows that white wines from the Vinho Verde region can be interesting and complex compared to the fizzy, lighter alcohol wines many consumers abroad are familiar with. And the Monsanto and Malgaso subregion is well-positioned to deliver more quality white wines in future. The subtle differences in climate and soil with Galicia's Rias Baixas region shows that this white grape, Alvarinho in Spain, Alvarinho in Portugal, may be enjoyed in different variations. Something all wine drinkers can toast to. For Monocle in Rias Baixas and Monsanto, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thanks to Ivan Cavallio for that report. Here in London, one of the capital's most loved restaurants, Honey & Co. has been entertaining customers with its home-style Middle Eastern food for a decade. Just some weeks ago, it left its original location on Fitzrovia's Warren Street and moved to Bloomsbury. I met the founders of Honey & Co., Sarit Packer and Itamar Srulovic, to talk about what else changed when the restaurant moved, how their cooking has evolved in a decade, and what kind of plans they have for the future. We, both chefs, been chefs for a very long time and worked quite a bit in Israel and in London. And at some stage, about 12 years ago, Itamar started saying, I think it's time for us to do our own thing. And I was like, no, we have quite good jobs. Everything's fine. We don't need to. And Itamar was like, yeah, but it would be so fun. And I don't know, it, it kind of wore me down, I suppose. And then we started looking. It took us a while to find yeah. our shop. And then we stumbled on the little shop on 25A Warren Street. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, we opened a little Honey and Co. And then got busy really quickly. It got really nice and buzzy and fun. And it got too small. And we ended up opening a little deli across the road, Honey and Spice. And then another larger grill restaurant just five minutes down the road on Great Portland Street. And then without us noticing, it was suddenly 10 years. And the lease that we signed on this tiny little restaurant, not believing we would even last those 10 years, mm. came to a close. And we were like, oh, maybe they're not going to renew it. And actually, they didn't. So. And now you've just moved. Yep, just moved. <laughs> just moved to <laughs> as Bloomsbury. If, as if it's nothing, yeah. yeah. Uh, 10 minutes down the road in the other direction. The other side of uh, Tottenham Court Road, which is a big journey for us. Yeah. <laughs> All of our other places are kind of on the same strip. So, so it's, it's a bit of an extension, but it's a beautiful shop. Has it also been an opportunity to do something differently? Having a new location, does it come with new ideas and a new approach? I mean, I think what we really wanted to do is actually not so much introduce new things, but go back to the original, go back to the beginning and do the things that we kind of had to stop doing because we got too busy and because our kitchen was too small. I think it's mostly kind of like doing what we do, but better. Hopefully in an easier way, because this location is actually built to be a restaurant. So it's got enough electricity and enough water and, and it's got a bit more space. And hopefully we can do what we used to do early days in Honey & Co. when Itama and I were in the kitchen all the time and we weren't as busy as we got. So what did you do in the early days? Just like a lot of stuff that was really time-consuming and fidgety, very traditional, like stuffing things, rolling things, making little pastries. All these things, when Honey & Co. got really, really busy, kind of had to... Fizzled away. Fizzled away. We couldn't keep up with the volume, and they are very time-consuming. So here there's a bit more space, and hopefully some of them over time will start coming back. 
I don't want to talk about the pandemic really anymore, but I've understood that actually you found something positive from that. The pandemic strengthened your connection with the local community in Fitzrovia, I understood. Not just the community geographically, but just our community, you know, online and people who are engaged with our FT column and people who were listening to our podcast. Just people that would come to the shop and buy more and stuff like that. So we kind of, actually, when we're talking about community, we're not talking about just Fitzrovia. We're talking about these people that kind of wanted to get involved, wanted to support and could choose a lot of places over the pandemic to support and chose to support us. And we had like a direct connection. We did all these like fun meals and different kind of events and different things. And it was quite important for us to understand that even without this kind of traditional structure of restaurant service, we still had something quite interesting going. So that was quite nice to see. Yeah. And we kind of we used this time. We didn't enjoy it, but no. <laughs> we tried to have fun with it as much as possible. So at one point we turned one of the restaurant into a supermarket and we turned the other one into a falafel shop. And, and the deli was working all along, which is kind of really it's, you know, it's time to like show its stripes was in this pandemic where only food shops could be open and people came in just for that bit of joy and something that they could just, first of all, for the kind of smiling face, Rachel was there and Bridget was there and Itama and I were there quite a lot. And, you know, it was just like a way, sometimes it was the only people someone saw in that mm-hmm. day or the week. And it was quite nice to just, even with the masks and everything, to just hand over bags of food. It was for some people just the only time they left home. I think it's interesting you mentioned a podcast and you mentioned your your column in in the Financial Times Weekend magazine. How do those things work together? What do you learn when you are doing that? How does it benefit your business? Obviously, you get more attention and you may get new customers, but how else does it help you in what you do at the restaurant? First of all, it keeps us interested and it keeps things fresh for us. And just keep on having these conversations and thinking about food and dishes and seeing things in a different way just allows us to keep things fresh and keep things interested. I think it's really good for the team to know that there's so many options, so many things that you can do with food. And it's fun. You know, we get to meet people, we get to see things. We love it. So I think our rule of thumb is we always say yes, yes. the first time and probably the second time as well. Yeah, unless it was an atrocious thing, we we always try to say yes to everything <laughs> and, and try it once. And if we don't like it, we just won't do it again. But What I, have we said no to? There's very little we've said no to over the years. There, it's we, not a lot, yeah. We just try. And it's just if we really feel that it's not our kind of thing. But other than that, we pretty much say yes and we enjoy most of it, even if it's quite hard because we're together and that's fun. And usually someone from our team is there as well to kind of, you know, experience things. And I think what Itama was saying is the main thing is it just keeps an energy going. Doing more things keeps everyone more excited. So you ran your restaurant in Fitzrovia for a decade and now you have moved to Bloomsbury. I'm wondering over the course of, say, the last decade, how much has your cooking style evolved Or what kind of business lessons have you learned? What are the biggest things that have happened to you in the last 10 years in that sense? It's a really interesting question because I think in essence, our cooking hasn't changed at all. There are some dishes that we have on now that we had 10 years ago, and they're pretty much exactly as they are. But we have gone through a lot of incarnations sometimes to go back to those dishes. So obviously, we've worked with a lot of chefs and a lot of different teams over the last 10 years, because Itama and I haven't cooked every meal that's happened in the last 10 years. So a lot, a lot of chefs. like it, though. It's sometimes. No, no, we've worked with a lot of really amazing chefs, and everyone brings something, and everyone changes something. And then every now and again, we also step in and say, wait, we're drifting maybe away from the Middle East or drifting away from hominess, and that's not what we want. So it's about pulling it back. I mean, Honey and Smoke is a bit more 
restaurant. But Honey and Co., it's always about remembering that the essence is always supposed to be this food that you would eat at home. Business lessons, I think, I know it's such a cliche, but it's about trusting your instinct. Mm. It's about knowing that if you are not comfortable in a situation or if you are not comfortable with a person, then you just shouldn't be working with them or shouldn't be doing this thing. I think at the beginning we were kind of like, we don't have any business experience. You know, we come from kitchens. This is all we knew. So the whole process of becoming business owners and restaurant owners was a, you know, trial and error a lot. Yes. So we, we didn't have that confidence going into that. But I think we do now. I think now we definitely know if a situation is a little bit off. We know to be brave and cut it. If a person is a little bit not comfortable, we just need to cut it and move on and, you know, take the consequences. I mean, there's still so much we can learn and so much yeah, we can sure. improve on. And we very much rely on this base of people that work with us because nothing we could do would happen without a team behind us because we're only two people and we do a lot. So there's a lot of people helping us there. And I think what we've learned is more to kind of understand how our style of cooking is, how our style of service is. There's definitely that varies quite a lot in the industry and you can have a lot of different experiences. So... What we do is try and hold tight to the people that really understand the ethos of what we do and how we do it and try and instill that in a very clear way in all the new employees so that atmosphere carries and continues. That's kind of our main kind of lesson is to not just let things happen, but to be very involved in how we want them to happen. And what do you have planned for the rest of 2022 or even 2023? <laughs> I don't think we can tell you. <laughs> We have a plan. <laughs> We have a secret plan. <laughs> But it's a secret plan. You're going to have to invite us again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> how, how soon? <laughs> well, hopefully, well, hopefully not till 23, but you might have to invite <laughs> us again in 23. At the moment, we're focusing on the new Honey Co., making sure it's all as we want it to be. It's really important for us to get this right. We've invested a lot in it. That's our main kind of objective now. Sarit Bakker and Itamar Srulovich there, and then Johanienko Restaurant is open now on Conduit Street in London's Bloomsbury. Up next to the week's food and drink headlines, here is Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. The Japanese spirit shochu can now be sold in New York State under its own name after a change in state law. Distillers had been forced to sell the alcoholic beverage under the label soju, which is a Korean drink. The New York Japanese Restaurant Association welcomed the move and plans to launch an education campaign on the spirit. It's one of Japan's oldest and has become more popular internationally in recent years. The world's best 50 restaurants 2022 has announced the 51st to 100th top places to eat globally. This year's lineup includes restaurants from 22 territories and six continents, including some in the Middle East for the first time. The announcement comes ahead of an award ceremony later this month, when we'll find out the top 50 on the list. A brewery in Singapore is using reclaimed sewage in its beer in a bid to draw attention to the climate crisis. New Brew is a collaboration between the craft brewers Brewworks and Singapore's National Water Agency. They say the drink is highly quaffable with a smooth, toasted honey-like aftertaste. The supermodel, famous for saying nothing tastes as good as skinny feels, has been named the new creative director of Diet Coke. 
Kate Moss will work on ad campaigns and events ahead of the drink's 40th anniversary. She's since denounced her controversial comment, but the zero-calorie drink was favoured by many supermodels in the noughties. Thanks, Lillian. You are with The Menu. Before the Dinner Sounds Rec recommendation, we do have time for a book recommendation. The Brits are proud of their cheeses, and for a reason. Now photographer and writer Angus D. Burdett has travelled across the British Isles for his new book, A Portrait of British Cheese. It's a great guide to cheeses from this part of the world, and comes with some great photography and recipes too. I spoke to Angus to find out more about his adventures with British cheeses. I'd go right back to the start of leaving university. I had a history of art degree and I didn't really kind of see myself going into the industry as such. So I moved up to the Welsh countryside with my partner, Lily, who lived up there with her family. Cut a long story short, we we set up a food company, a very small food company called The Bridge Lodge, which sold wild garlic foods. So lots of wild garlic wild garlic sea salt, wild garlic pesto, because up in North Wales, where we had moved to, it was just, the valleys were prolific with this lovely lush green leaf every spring. And I thought, you know, we should pick it, make some products. One thing led to another, and we went to some food markets, met lots of local farmers, butchers, cheesemakers. And that was the kind of the moment when I met lots of these cheesemakers and were inspired by them both their craft of making the actual cheese itself, but their knowledge of the landscape as well really intrigued me. And so I started writing articles. I founded a platform called Our Isles, which celebrates people who have a deep connection with the landscape, such as cheesemakers. And I kind of got so involved in the cheese side of things that I just kind of was meeting all of my local cheesemakers and just had this body of articles, prose, and lots of photography as well. So That was kind of where the book was born out of, just a passion project, really. And then choosing the 30 cheesemakers was very hard indeed, because I'm not sure of the particular number, but there is over 700 Arsan cheesemakers in British Isles now. And the selection for the 30 was based on different styles, their different location in the British Isles, their types of milk, types of animals which they use, the breed of animals. So whether they were using interesting breeds, such as the dairy shorthorn, and that was it really. I mean, it was just a, a selection of diverse cheeses which I wanted to create, wanted to portray. It's a very interesting selection of cheesemakers you feature in this book. I'm wondering, very often when people talk about culinary culture more widely in the UK, there's always talk about how bad things used to be in the 1980s and even 1990s before food started getting gradually much better. Has that been reflected in the world of cheese as well, or has the quality remained very high all along? I think the quality has been there, but the quantity hasn't been there of quality cheeses, if that makes sense. There was a huge decline post-war of Arsan cheesemakers because Lots of supermarkets were wanting consistent cheeses, cheeses which didn't change or weren't seasonal. They could have something which was very consistent and reliable to sell. So that put off a lot of Artan cheesemakers making their own unique cheeses. And that's happened until, you know, the 1990s and then 
organized companies such as Neil's Yard Dairy were the catalysts really of improving the situation. And since the noughties, really, I think it's really stepped up and lots and lots of new cheesemakers are coming out, creating their own businesses, which is fantastic. The quality has always been there, but the quantity hasn't been there. But I think now we live in a moment where we appreciate quality food. We want to know where our foods come from, the traceability and the transparency of the production, which I think lends itself to us and cheese. Obviously, you've spent a fair bit of time with these cheesemakers and producers. I wonder what kind of stories you heard when you were speaking to them and when you learned about what they do. Well, I found it fascinating because this book is as much about celebrating artisan cheese. It's also celebrating people, community, which is involved in the cheese industry here in the Bishals. There were some fascinating stories, for example, the history of the cow, which I found fascinating. A lot of these artisan cheesemakers, as I said, are celebrating native breed species of cow. So, for example, at Kingstone Dairy, where roll writers made by David Jowett, he's farming dairy shorthorns, which were the predominant cow before the war. As I said, Stonebeck are using northern dairy shorthorns. And a lot of other cheesemakers are are slowly interbreeding native species into their herds. Tell me more about when you were visiting those producers and what kind of recipes did you hear and what kind of recipes have you included in this book? When I visited each cheesemaker, I mean, they were unbelievably hospitable, so welcoming and friendly. And that's what really kind of drew me into the cheese community is that everyone's so friendly and, and open and over to exchanging knowledge. The recipes in the book, they kind of range from family recipes, which they've had for generations, seasonal recipes. The recipes are kind of half donated by the cheesemakers themselves and what they love to use with their cheese. And another handful of recipes are kind of what I've created myself. So from my background in working with wild foods. I love foraging and I love using wild foods in recipes. So lots of wild garlic, dandelion leaves, nettles, all of that. I'm wondering, are you on a mission with this book somehow? Did you think when you were writing this book, creating it, that you want to, for example, spread the message across the UK and internationally about the great things happening in this country, in this cheese industry? Precisely. I wanted to celebrate where our food comes from, really. I think there's a real urge for citizens to want to know where their food comes from. They want to get involved in their food increasingly. And I think with this book, I want to highlight the farming side of cheesemaking, which has often been overshadowed by more pleasing readings, like cheese reviews, like oozing centres and talking about the Moorish rinds, which I have included, by the way. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I've always thought knowing how it's got to that stage, how it's got to the cheese board, the story, the people behind it, the animals, the traditions behind making the product was something that really enticed me. And I wanted to celebrate that. I wanted to celebrate the uniqueness of the cheeses and the regionality in the British Isles. And that farming aspect is so important increasingly. I I, I feel that a lot of these cheesemakers the farmhouse cheesemakers, those cheesemakers who also have a farm, a lot of them in the book are almost environmentalists as well. One, for example, is Patrick Holden, who makes half cheddar, 
with his wife Becky in West Wales and Patrick is a well-known farmer, regenerative farmer, who is the CEO of the Sustainable Food Trust. And he's fantastic. I mean, almost I see it as if you're buying a piece of his cheese, not only are you buying a food product, you're also donating towards a cause who are trying to improve their piece of land in West Wales. And I kind of see this as a more increasingly prevalent thing in the artisan cheese world is that these cheesemakers are also farmers and they are also environmentalists. They're looking to improve the condition of their farm, the health of their soil, improve their biodiversity on the farm. So that's what I really want to highlight. It's not just about the cheese, but there's so much more to it. And I think it is these farmers who are on the front line of innovation. They are the ones who are implementing these regenerative agrological farming practice, whatever you'd want to call it, but they are the ones who are almost from the ground up trying to improve things. Angus D. Bird is there. His new book, A Portrait of British Cheese, is out now. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously, you will find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens and I am Marcus Hippie. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Beyonce with Break My Soul. Thanks for listening. You